Welcome to the Birmingham Bible Conference hosted by Glen Iris Baptist Church. We extend an invitation to you to come visit us at 1137 10th Place South in Birmingham. The Monday through Wednesday a.m. service begins at 11, or you can join us at noon each day for the delayed broadcast of the morning service. The evening service begins at 7 p.m., or you can join us for the live broadcast each evening. Returning for this year's Birmingham Bible Conference is Dr. Brian Green from London, England, where he has pastored the Calvary Baptist Church for over 50 years. Dr. Green is a gifted preacher and teacher of the Word of God, speaking in many conferences as well as the director of the annual Highly Bible Conference held in Hertfordshire, England. We trust you will find help and encouragement from God's Word today as we now join the Glen Iris Baptist Congregation for the Birmingham Bible Conference. Had the scripture reading tonight, if you'll find your place there in Second Chronicles chapter 7, Dr. Green is coming to preach from that text. And my, how we need the Lord to move in our midst. The fire fell from heaven in the Old Testament, and we need the Lord's fire of the Holy Spirit to burn out the dross of sin, to break our hardened hearts as we sing about, to open the hearts of sinners, their eyes to the, the knowledge of the Savior. Let us ask again for his blessing tonight. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come as your children, asking for your help. Help our dear brother, assist him, Lord. May he preach in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe that all is vain unless your Spirit comes down. Use him mightily to speak to us. Lord, you have ordained the preaching of your word. and You've called men to do it. And we are here at your bidding You have designed that we be in this place at this time. You have ordered the events for our brother to come now instead of when we planned. And we realize that you're sovereign and you have the perfect right to do as you please. And so with that in mind, we present ourselves before you, Lord, the best we know how. If there's any sin that would hinder us from the blessing that your word has for us, the work that it needs to do in our lives, we pray that that too would be done. Lord, remind us whose we are claims of Christ upon us. May we, as we hear your word tonight, fresh and anew, offer ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. We pray in Jesus' precious and matchless name. Amen. I'm sure we all say amen to that, don't we? And uh, it is something of a real blessing to be with you tonight once again. And to share with you, we always uh, go home and tell our congregation about the music we hear here in this church, and uh, it really is a a thrill to our souls. There's a difference in the churches in Great Britain and in America uh, that we don't have a choir, and neither do many of the churches have singing like you have. Uh, In my own church, I have a lot of people who can sing very, very well, and so therefore we do have solos and duets and so on. But we don't have a choir. I tell people that my choir is the congregation. And so it is, because the whole congregation singing uh, sings like a choir. But it it really is lovely to be with you and to share as we do uh, around the Word of God and to share in our worship and our praise together. I want you to turn with me, if you will, please, to this uh, portion of Scripture that was so well read tonight 
uh, from uh, 2 Chronicles and chapter 7. This uh, chapter is a chapter which is really full. Uh, I've preached many times from this particular chapter, I must confess, and maybe before the Lord takes me home, I'll be preaching for a lot more as well, because it seems to me to be so full, and it really is a message for today. Uh, Sometimes when we look at the Old Testament, we uh, find that uh, it really is concerning their day and age, and for them, And there's nothing really for us, but that's not right. Because when you look at the whole of the scripture, we understand that the Old Testament and the New Testament together are the two lips of God. And we believe that when we come to the scriptures, there's always a message for us, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Uh, And I I suppose I emphasize in the Old Testament because it's so neglected in your country and in mine as well. And that's a sad thing because this Old Testament is full of great gems. Tonight I want to try, if I can, to speak to you about revival. Uh, When I talk about revival, I'm talking about the real thing. I'm not talking about evangelistic campaigns. They have their place and they're proper and right, I'm sure. Uh, But I'm talking about when God comes down and visits his people. And that is exactly what I want to try, if I can tonight, to convey to you that we might be stirred up ourselves to seek the Lord and to seek him in such a manner and in such a way that he will hear and answer prayer. The first verse is my verse tonight and part of it in particular, but nevertheless I'm going to read the first verse. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Notice those words that we have mentioned, of course, in our service uh, before this evening, where it says, when he had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven. The fire came down from heaven. It's my conviction that this is revival, when the fire comes down from heaven. And I trust that by the end of our service tonight, you too will agree with me that that's real revival. It's when God really is at work. You know, someone has described revival in this manner, and I think it's a good illustration. You see, the ordinary Christian life is a wonderful experience. You see a, a father walking along the road with his little child, and they're walking hand in hand, and it's a lovely experience. And those of you who have had the privilege of doing that will understand what I mean. It's a lovely experience. It's a wonderful experience. That's the ordinary Christian life. But then sometimes the father stoops down and picks up the child and puts him or her in his arms and he carries the child along. That's revival. Because that's what God sometimes does. Now it wouldn't do us any good for us to be carried all the time That's not the normal, ordinary experience. But there are times when it's needed and when it's necessary and God sees fit in his sovereignty that he stoops down from heaven and comes and visits visits us himself. We look back into history and we see the many times in which God has done that and blessed his church in such a manner and in such a way. I believe that the age in which we live, uh, in fact, almost demands the fact that we desperately need God to come down and visit us in mighty power and mighty blessing. 
I hope tonight that your heart and your soul cries out to God, Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. We need it in our day and in our generation. But let me, if I can, paint for you the picture of the background that we have in our chapter because it's so very necessary to see the context. Uh, Again, someone has said, I think it was... uh, Uh, Campbell Morgan uh, that people uh, try to take texts out of its context and make a pretext of saying anything at all we don't want to do that we want to put it back into its context and understand what it really means and that's very necessary as far as we're concerned from chapter 5 is the story of the temple and the dedication of the temple Remember, I've said to you already, and I recall saying it, uh, that the temple is not Solomon's temple. I know that we say that, and I suppose glibly it doesn't matter, uh, but it does matter in the sense that it never, ever in the scripture is recorded as Solomon's temple. It is always the Lord's temple, and it's the place where the name of the Lord is and would be. And so we come to this temple which Solomon built, and that's the correct way of doing it. It took seven years uh, to build, and seven, of course, is a significant number, as you will obviously understand and know. It it was made of the finest materials. It was the most beautiful building uh, of its its kind, and perhaps the most beautiful ever uh, that was erected. It was built in silence. That always is a strange thing, isn't it? That not one word was uttered at the actual building of that uh, temple. And when you realise and you remember that the Christian church uh, comes as as an example from that particular temple, you'll understand that when God adds to his church and as God works, it's always in a silent way that God works. Sometimes we like to think it's with a great noise. Well, it's not. God works in a silent manner, doesn't he? And just like the temple was built in a silent manner, so the Lord builds his temple, the spiritual temple, the place where the Holy Spirit himself dwells. Before the temple was opened, there was the dedication. It took seven days of preparation, followed by seven days of dedication. After, there were seven days of the dedication of the altar, And, of course, that was the most important thing. And so, therefore, uh, there were seven days for that dedication. dedication. And then there was uh, the seven days of dedication. I know that this sounds a bit complicated. And, of course, it seems to me to be be, uh, a bit complicated as well at times. But there was 21 days in all. And then also it was a time of the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles and that was happening at the same time uh, as well. And so you can imagine that that would go for seven days or eight days as in the New Testament it was, but seven days at least. And so you had a whole month really of dedication and spiritual things. You can imagine just what it was like yourselves. The Bible actually recalls and tells us that all Israel were present. 
they all came to Jerusalem at that particular time to see this wonderful edifice and to admire it and also to praise God and to thank him for his goodness and grace in being able to build this remarkable uh, thing. And it tells us about that. The singers were there and the musicians were there. There was 120 trumpets and no doubt uh, the 200,000 people who actually worked in some manner and in some way with the temple, they would be there as well. It's very difficult to visualize in your mind, isn't it? Uh, but the vision, of course, began in the heart of David. Uh, it was designed by God and built by Solomon. And probably at that particular time, Psalm 118 and Psalm 136 were sung. Probably 118 hadn't been composed, so maybe that wasn't. But nevertheless, 136 is a very similar psalm, as you may say, because they sang the words which you have, and we read tonight, uh, uh, about the Lord and his mercy enduring uh, forever, and so on. Uh, again, I remind you that this was the Lord's temple. And that's why it was so important that all these things were done in the right manner and in the right time. And then we have before that, uh, after every dedication had been done, Solomon begins to pray, doesn't he? It, it is quite a, an important prayer, uh, quite a remarkable prayer as well. It's the longest prayer in the Bible. And uh, we understand that a special uh, building or a special uh, place was built for him uh, so that he would be above the crowd and that was of brass itself and uh, called, uh, as you may understand and know, a pulpit, although it wasn't a preaching place, it was in fact the same word for a pulpit that was used in that manner. And, and so it was built there. And Solomon climbs on it, he goes on his knees, he puts his hands into heaven, and he begins to pray. He worships, and he praises the Lord. He gives thanks, and he requests the Lord. And you'll read the prayer and see how remarkable the prayer really was. And then, after the prayer, the fire falls. Now that's, of course, our subject tonight. Uh, but um, uh, you see this, the significance of all this and all that I've been speaking about. I want you to notice the important words in, in this particular verse. I'll read it again and emphasize those words so you'll see. And now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed uh, the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now, when you read a verse like that, of course, there are important words, and you can see the important words that I've tried to emphasize in our verse. But what this verse tells us is all really about what we call revival. We believe that there's something different in the sense that the country needs to awaken out of its death so that they may know that there's a God in heaven and they may repent of their sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. But as far as the church is concerned, the church needs to awaken as well, of course. But the church needs to be revived. And so we're talking about Christians. We're talking about those who are born again, those who are truly saved. They're the only ones who can really experience revival. Now, when you do experience revival, then, of course, others are blessed as well. 
Hundreds of thousands are swept into the kingdom. Sometimes uh, what a church does in a, a whole lifetime of maybe a couple of hundred years is done in a moment in a, in a revival. See, that's what God really does. And we'll be speaking about that as we consider this. But the first thing I want you to understand and know, and this is so important, is the imperative of revival. The imperative of, of revival. Our scripture says, when Solomon had made an end of praying. When Solomon had made an end of praying. That's the first important word, isn't it? Praying. It really is. History shows us that no prayer, uh, there'll be no blessing. But where there's much prayer, there will be much blessing as well. And we know this, that history tells us time and time again, if you read the history of revival, uh, that there's no revival ever had without fervent and earnest prayer. Someone has said that to expect God to work uh, and to bless when we don't pray is to ask God uh, to act contrary to his word. And I believe that's true. I believe it's true. And so therefore, we as Christians must wake up to the fact that we must be praying people. We must be warriors in prayer. Prayer is the hardest thing you can do. I understand that and I know it. Every day I have a battle and a fight uh, myself just to get to the place of prayer and then to stay in the place of prayer and to earnestly pray and constantly to pray and come back tomorrow as well and the next day as well. It's hard going. We're busy people, aren't we? Have we really got time for it? Listen, we must have time for it. That's the imperative. We must have time for it. And if we haven't got time for it, God's not going to bless us. We need this prayer. The first thing I would say about prayer is we're exhorted to pray. You remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. Why did he say that? Because of the imperative of praying. You go back into the scriptures and you'll find in the book of Psalms and you could find so many references there. But in the book of Psalms it says, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face continually. That was the psalmist's idea. And then in Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call him upon him while he is near. You say, that's a gospel text. No, no, come on. That's a text for the Christian. We must understand it ourselves. And then after that, of course, it's, it's a text for others uh, uh, as well. Jeremiah uh, speaks about, call unto me and I will show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Isn't that clear enough for us? Uh, this was to a people who were in exile. Uh, but God promised he would do something great. And, and is God the same? We believe he is. Uh, uh, and we believe that he will do that if we call upon his name. Because he said so in his word. And all of you know the verse, of course, that comes from the Gospels. Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. Do we really believe that? Or is it just a lovely verse that we can teach to our children? Or does it mean something to Christians that when we ask, we know God will answer prayer? And when we knock, uh, it will be opened. Do we really believe that? You see, I'm just challenging you, but I'm challenging my own heart as well. It seems to me that we do express 
the truth when we're praying that there is a cause and effect. There really is. And we must understand that. The promise is clear. No prayer, no blessing. Much prayer, much blessing. Remember Psalm 126, another lovely song. So, it's speaking about sowing, isn't it? The farmer. So in tears, reap in joy. C.H. Spurgeon said that reapers, weepers are always reapers. And so they really are. Mr. Bunyan had a character, one of his characters in one of his books, which uh, he called Mr. Wet Eyes. Mr. Wet Eyes. But how many Christians have wet eyes? Not many, do they? And yet we're talking about a lost world, aren't we? We're talking about a world in crisis at this moment. You speak about your government and I speak about my government and the terrible thing. But do we really weep about it? Have we learned the secret of coming before the Lord and really interceding as we really should? General Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. I'm sure that you may know that. Uh, and uh, he was a man who set up his, his uh, organization uh, with military terms. And so he had generals and he had officers. An officer would be one who would be in charge of each, each of his halls. Uh, one officer wrote to uh, the general and said, this area where I'm placed is a very hard area. I don't seem to be able to find anything that I can do that really works. Tell me, is there anything that I've lacked? General Booth never used to write letters back, but he used to just write on the letter and send the letter back. So he wrote on the letter, and he wrote on the letter, Try tears. Try tears. Listen, uh, again, I'm speaking to myself. And maybe I'm speaking to you as well, but do we really try tears? We think of loved ones who are unconverted. Uh, we think of sons and daughters. We think of a nation. A nation without God. A nation heading towards the abyss. My friend, have we tried tears? Do we really know what that really means? All oh, that the Lord will speak to us. We know that Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, isn't he? And people do so in a derisory fashion. Listen, he had every reason to weep. If he will not hear I will weep in the secret place for you. Should that not be us? Uh, we turn over the pages of our, our Bible and we come to the New Testament and we see Apostle Paul leaving Ephesus and he warned them with tears. He warned them with tears. What about the Lord? Three times in the Gospel we read about the Lord uh, weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. And then over Jerusalem. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, if the Lord did it, how much more did we ought to do that? Again, to quote Mr. Spurgeon, he said, we don't go to heaven with dry eyes. But some of us do. That's a sad thing, isn't it? We've forgotten what that is. You read about your forefathers, the ones that really founded this nation, how spiritual they were and how they spent so much time in prayer before the Lord. We're exalted to pray. But then let me hurry on and say we're encouraged to pray as well because we see men and women of the Bible who really prayed. 
Moses hasted to come into the presence of the Lord. Jacob wrestled with the angel. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Hannah poured out her soul. What does that mean? Poured out her soul unto the Lord. Elijah was the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. We turn to the book of Judges five times in trouble and in danger and, and all the terrible things that was happened. Five times they prayed unto the Lord and the Lord answered, answered and sent a judge to deliver them out of the hand of the foes. Samuel is noted as a man of prayer. David, of course, was a man of prayer. And in the New Testament, we could count so many of them who were men of prayer. One James, when he died, history tells us, not the Bible, but history, and whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I think it could almost be that his knees showed that he'd been on his knees constantly before God. And they looked and saw his knees and they said, this man has been a man of prayer. I believe it. I think it was right and true. David Brainard, your own missionary to the Indians, in his diary on the 8th of the 8th, 1745, uh, he writes these words, preached in the afternoon, visible concern. God seemed to descend like a rushing wind. All turned to God. What was the secret of this man? He wrestled day and night in prayer and months he wrestled with God for those same men. And then suddenly God came and visited him and blessed him in such a ma manner. Sometimes he prayed on his bed of straw. Sometimes it was in the lonely forest. It was amongst the snow that he knelt down before God and urge urgently pleaded until God came. We talk about Wesley, John Wesley. He said that he couldn't go every day without four hours of prayer. Four hours of prayer. There's many Christians who don't pray for four minutes. I mean it. And we say, what a great man he was. Little wonder he prayed for four hours a day. Listen, I'm not saying we've got to do that. Luther was the same. He prayed for four hours a day. Whitfield spent whole days in prayer before God. Remember in your own history in 1857, how here in the USA, six met for prayer one lunchtime in New York City, and they kept at it. They kept at it until the church was full of people without any advertising. And then all over the city, there were people who met in churches at lunchtime just to pray. And then there was an all-night prayer meeting, and they all turned up to this all-night prayer meeting. And God came down, and a million souls were swept into the kingdom. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that happened again? Do you think it's impossible? Has God changed? No, he's not, has he? We don't believe that. I look back in my own country and because of, of what was happening in the United States of America two years after that, London opened all their theatres and, and at lunchtime for people to come and pray and they were all filled. 
listen, if you if you opened a a little a little room in your house now in London, there'd be hardly anyone turn up. What's happened to us? We've gone back, haven't we? We've left left our first love, and Christians have done that as well. They really have. In Wales, there was a man over here named Morgan who came originally from Wales and he longed that his own country should know something about this revival. He went back. He thought, what can he do? And he printed, he printed some notices which just said, prayer meeting to be held tonight in certain hall. And suddenly the people came out to pray. And a hundred thousand were saved in Wales during that revival. In Ulster, that is Northern Ireland, in a schoolhouse, a handful of young men met together. And some met in a graveyard. And they just prayed. And God came down and blessed them. In uh, 1906, after the Welsh revival, Joseph Kemp was minister of Charlotte Street Chapel in Edinburgh, the most well-known and noted church that was in that city. And he told them about the Welsh revival that he had seen and how God had blessed the nation in such a manner and the congregation was stirred and they began to pray. And there was 200 people praying at the same time and yet there was no confusion whatsoever. I can't understand this because I've never seen it. I've never experienced it. Oh, but listen, I long for it. I really do. They had a meeting that began at three o'clock in the afternoon and it went on to midnight and people couldn't get in to pray and they complained. And so Sunday morning they opened the church doors at 6.30 and, and it went on until the morning service. Kept on praying, kept on praying. Thousands were converted. In 1950, in the Hebridean revival, which I gave a little word about, I spoke about those uh, four or five people that met in a barn and kept on praying before God until God answered prayer. And the two ladies, one crippled totally with arthritis, could hardly walk. Uh, and then the other lady was completely blind. One was 84 and the other was 82. And they just met to pray because they couldn't do anything else. My how God blessed. The whole nation was converted. And, and the public houses were closed. Uh, and there was no gambling and no sin on the streets. But people thronged the churches to hear the gospel and the word of the Lord. Oh, that God should do it again. We're exhorted to pray. We're encouraged to pray. And, and one other thing. We're expected to pray. We really are. God expects us to ask. In Ezekiel, in chapter 36, and verses 36 and 37, he says, I will do it. I will yet be inquired of by the house of Israel for this. That's the principle in the word of God. You turn to the book of Malachi and you'll remember that wonderful word, Prove me now that I will open the windows of heaven. But there's the emphasis, Prove me now. It's interesting how such a large portion of Scripture is devoted to prayer. 
It really is. And, and, and the first reference to prayer is in Genesis in chapter 4, and the last verse, I believe it is, verse 26 anyway, and it says, Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And the last verse concerning prayer is in Revelation 22 and verse 21, where it says, Amen. That's the last prayer. In 1596, the General Assembly of Scotland were called together. The ministers had their information to come together and to humble themselves and to wrestle with God. A man named Davidson got up to preach and he preached about the watchman out of Ezekiel. And he preached with great power. And the Lord was there. And the Lord blessed them in such a sovereign manner, in sovereign way. Ministers, ministers who were godly, holy ministers, were crying out for mercy and lying on the floor before God. You may say, I don't want to see that in my church. Listen, when God is at work, we're not going to confine him. Oh no, if this is really of God, this is not of man, this is not worked up by the flesh as some, some is today. We don't mean that and I don't mean that and I don't want that. I want God to work in such a mighty and a wonderful way. A.T. Pierce said, there are 30,000 promises in the word of God. I've not counted them but I think there's only 32,000 words in the word of God. So therefore, the majority of words in the Word of God must be promises as far as A.T. Pearson is concerned. But one thing I do know, that there's a great deal of promises in the Word of God. And remember this, this is so important, it really is, that all the promises of God, none of them are cancelled. None of them are cancelled. God honours his Word and God will still honour his Word. We don't believe that, you don't believe the Bible the imperative of revival. But let me hurry on. I've spent a long time with that, but perhaps it's necessary that I should do that. Then, you see, the illustration of revival, because we hear the verse says, and when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down. That's the illustration of revival. The fire came down. Our God always answers by fire. You think of the burning bush. You think of Sinai. You think of Gideon. You think of Elijah. You think of the Lord Jesus Christ who baptized indeed with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Revival is like a fire. It consumes. It sweeps over great crowds of people. It controls. Fire, as you all know, is one of the original elements it's of divine creation. You can't manufacture this gift from heaven. No. And, and here the fire falls from heaven. Oh, that God would do that again. We sing the hymn which General Booth composed, and you'll remember it, how that twelve times that hymn says, Send the fire. Thou Christ a burning, cleansing flame, send the fire, send the fire. Thy blood brought gift, today we claim. Send the fire, send the fire. Look down upon this waiting host. Give us the promised Holy Ghost. We want another Pentecost. Send the fire, send the fire. We'll sing that in a moment. And really mean it while you sing it. Evan Roberts, when he was down the pit, working at the coalface, suddenly there was an explosion and there was a fire where he was working. He always carried his Bible with him. He had it open at the time. 
And the only place it was burnt was the place that we're considering tonight. And he felt that that was from God. And he went right the way through Wales, preaching the gospel and proclaiming the truth, meeting with people of prayer, and revival broke out. You see, what does fire really speak to us about? It speaks to us about the presence of God. Remember the tabernacle in the wilderness? When they went through the wilderness, the cloud was above the tabernacle. But at night, it, it was the fire of God. And what did it mean? It meant the presence of God. What did the fire at the burning bush really mean? It meant the presence of God. What did the fire mean at Pentecost? It meant the presence of God. It really did. In Leviticus and chapter 9, we read these words. Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle and they came out and blessed the people. And then came a fire out before them and they went on their knees and shouted praise unto God. The Welsh divines always used to speak about God is visiting his garden. Samuel Rutherford from Scotland uh, was put in prison simply because he was a Christian. And he writes in his letters from prison and he wrote this and you can read it yourself if you have a book which tells you about the letters from Samuel Rutherford from prison. And he wrote these words, Jesus Christ came into my prison cell last night and every stone glowed like a ruby. I love that. That's so wonderful because that's how the Lord works, isn't it? The presence of God. You may say, don't we have the presence of God? Oh, I think we do. But somehow we don't feel the power, do we? You see, the story of the Lord when the storm broke out upon the lake. Remember how the boat went out? And the Lord was in that boat, wasn't he? But he was asleep in the back of the boat. And the disciples, after trying their hardest, and remember they were brave fishermen, to bring the boat to land, they realized the Lord was in the boat. And the only thing they could do was to come to the Lord. Carest thou not that we perish? And the Lord stood and said, Peace be still. And all was still. That's a picture of the church in this day in which we live, you see. The ship is in the water and the storm is here. And all around us there's a storm. And you know, you read your paper and you see the television and you see the terrible uh, disasters which are happening in this day and age. What's the answer to it? A political situation? No, a spiritual revival. That's the answer. It really is. And you say, isn't the Lord really in the boat? Yes, he is in the boat. But his power's not. But we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, carest thou not that we perish? Lord, come amongst us and give your word in such a mighty fashion and say, peace be still, because we know that when you speak, that all will be well. And surely that's what I'm trying to say. It speaks of the presence of God. It speaks of the purifying of God. You see, revival cleanses. Peter speaks about being tried in the fire. We know that revival is always a revival of holiness. Congregations begin to weep. Why? Because of conviction of sin. And there is confession, yes. We've sinned before God. Is there anyone here tonight who's never sinned before God? We've sinned before God in word and in thought and in deed. And we have to confess that before the Lord. Oh, that the Lord may come and refine us. 
there is a refining fire, isn't there? And we understand that. Lowestoft is a, a place not too far from London. I suppose it's about a couple of hours' journey. And in Lowestoft, there was a great revival. It's only a little place, actually. But the fishermen used to go in there, and they used to go and put their boats there, stay for a little while, and then come out. Many of them had come from Scotland. That's the other end of Great Britain. And the big fisherman was there, and, 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 and suddenly... Even amongst these big fishermen, revival broke out. There was a preacher there filled with the Spirit of God and God used him in such a manner and in such a way that he preached to these fishermen and they heard and they listened. And, 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 and it speaks about them throwing themselves to the ground in conviction of sin and crying out to the Lord for conversion. And the, it, the historian records that the floor was like a battlefield. That's what God does. But remember, even in your own country, this has happened on a number of occasions. Oh, it really has. Uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards saw that. Jonathan Edwards' eyes were very weak. Uh, he had a candle in one hand. He had a script in the other. And, and you, you wouldn't imagine anything could really happen with a preacher who was doing this. Uh, but uh, here he was. He was preaching. He wrote every word of his sermon. He read every word of his sermon. He never just preached as some of us do, uh, but he had the candle there so that he could hear. And suddenly the Lord came down and people cried out even in their seats before the Lord. And the Lord did a great work. And revival uh, that happened there uh, spread across the United States of America in a remarkable and a wonderful way. See, that's what God does. And then fire speaks of the power of God. We live in the age of technology, of course. And the church has everything except the power. And that's what we really need. And that's what we require. Holy Ghost power. Heaven sent power. And it changes lives. It influences nations. And power is what we need. Power to live and power to die and power to serve the Lord in such a manner and in such a way that will be useful in our day and in our generation. But let me go on. Because this verse is so full, I could take a long time. But the next thing you'll see in the verse is instruction in revival. Do you see what it says? Now, when Solomon had made an end of praying, that's the first word. The fire came down, that's the second. And then and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. Consumed. Consumed, that's the word. Fire eats up the sacrifice. And on the burnt offering, everything was burnt up. Everything that was on the altar, totally and utterly consumed. If you turn to uh, the book of Leviticus at your leisure, and I think it's chapter 8, you'll see there the offering of consecration. And the offering of consecration was that, that Aaron and his sons had to put their hands upon the beasts that would be slain. Identification. It was their consecration as the animal was slain. The blood would be taken and, and uh, their right hand, uh, the blood would be put upon their fingers, upon the right ear and upon the foot as well. And then there would be the blood around them, 
as a circle. and They would stand in the middle. And what that meant was it was their consecration before the Lord. Every detail, every part of them was consecrated to them. They were completely cons- consecrated. Their hearing was co- consecrated. It was set apart from God. Their hands were consecrated, set apart for God. Their feet was consecrated, set apart from God. Why did they do that? Because as an illustration to you and to me, we need to be fully and totally, absolutely consecrated to the Lord. I wonder if we really are ourselves. We sing a chorus, break me, melt me, mold me, fill me. Oh, I want to be filled, but do I want to be broken? That's hard, isn't it? Remember with Gideon, as he goes to fight the Midianites? There they are at the top of the mountain. And in their hand, of course, they have the trumpet. And they also, of course, have in their hands that pitcher. And the pitcher had to be broken. Why? Because the light was not shining. The pitcher had to be broken. And we have to be broken ourselves before the light shines to this lost world that we're talking about. Oh, that God would do it once again as far as we're concerned. Gideon had to bring his offering, didn't he? And lay it upon the rock. What offering was that? It was the burnt offering. It was a consecration offering. Elijah too as well. Was that He had to do that. Francis Ridley Havigal is a writer you know and was quoted yesterday. She formed a society. And the society was just called All for Jesus Christians. Why did she do that? Because people are not all for Jesus. They're Sunday Christians. Or perhaps they're two-day-a-week Christians. But where are the all-together Christians? Where are the all-together-for-Jesus Christians? Consecration. Paul says, and we've had it quoted, haven't we, uh, that we must present our bodies as a living sacrifice. What God wants is our bodies. As a living sacrifice, not as a dead sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice, all that we may understand that. The Apostle Paul says, I die daily. Why? So that his flesh shall die, and sin may die, and that the Lord may be seen through him. Calvin used to have a crest, and in the crest it had a heart on fire with the words underneath. And these were the words that he had, I give thee all, I keep nothing back for myself. All that we might be like that. Tideman Childers was a well-known preacher some years ago in my country. It was at the time of the First World War, so you can imagine. It goes back a hundred years anyway. Tideman Childers was the chaplain of a hospital in Ipswich that used to receive all the wounded soldiers that came back from France. And many of them came back and it was his job to go and see them and to speak words of comfort. And if there was someone back in great distress, they would get hold of him and plead with him to come and speak to the person. And one day they got hold of him and said, there's a great problem, please come. One man is causing quite a fuss. And they went, he went in to see this man and they, he said to the staff, first of all, well, tell me a little bit about the man. And they said, well, he just, he, he just can't handle it. So he went to see this man who couldn't handle it, and he found he'd lost his legs. 
He'd lost his arms. And all that was left is what we call a trunk of his body. And the man said to him and told him, he said, who wants a, who wants a trunk? Who wants just this body? And time and seal children said, I think I know someone who does. My friend, what about your body? Have you consecrated that to the Lord? And you see, here's the picture of the sacrifices. Oh, there were so many of them, wasn't there? Thousands of sacrifices for the whole of the nation. But one sacrifice is just as important. Your sacrifice is just as important as anything else. You think about the satisfaction of this. We never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. I wonder if we've laid all on the altar for the Lord. We were made for satisfaction. One day we'll come to the end of our lives and we all know that. Some of us are older than others and we come to the end of our lives. Tell me, when you look back upon your life and you come to your, the end of your days, and I don't know when that will be, will you look back with satisfaction or with frustration? Oh, I've been to the bedside of people dying many, many, many times. I've been pastor of one church for 52 years. I've seen a whole congregation pass into eternity. And I've been there when they've died. And I've seen some are so frustrated they never achieved. They never got to that place. Why? Why? They were never really dedicated, never really consecrated, never gave their Lord their whole bodies, half of their heart, yes, no question about that. But what about the whole of their heart? What about everything? Are they, were they all together Christians? Yes, they were Christians, all right. But they weren't all together Jesus people, and that's a sad thing. And then I've seen others who are satisfied because they've been servants of the Lord and they've sought to do his will. But let me be quick as I close. You see, we come now to the last part of our verse. But before we do, let me just tell you that in 1904 was the great Welsh revival. Evan Roberts was just an ordinary person. He became a miner, went down into the pit day by day. Every day he would speak a word to all the people who went down in the pit and give them a verse of scripture. Uh, some would laugh at him and some would mock him. But uh, Evan Roberts believed God was going to use him. Just an ordinary man. Nothing special about him. He didn't come from a big home. He didn't come from a theological background. He knew nothing. He went to college but couldn't keep that up. Why? Because he didn't have enough time to pray. And so therefore he gave up his studies to pray. And God came down upon that one man. And God blessed him in such a manner and in such a way that there was revival in Wales that Wales still talks about, even though it's over a hundred years since. How did it happen? There were men and women who just gave themselves to prayer. And when they gave themselves to prayer, God heard and answered prayer. But I want you to see here the intention of revival. It's the last part of our verse. When Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. 
we can't appreciate perhaps what glory means. The English word glory is used in a number of, of ways. It's used as a boast. You'll remember uh, that the Apostle Paul uses it in that sense when he's writing to the Galatians, God forbid that I should glory or boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it's used as a place, the glory land. It's used as an ascription, glory and honour, majesty and power be unto him. And it's also used as well in such a manner whereby we speak of the Lord himself. Glory fill the house. The Lord fill the house. The psalmist says, uh, and, and he prays this, that glory may dwell in our land. Can you imagine that, if glory dwelt in our land? It's something far-fetched, isn't it? No, it's not. No, it's not. If all of us are serious about this, and we really mean it, it's not as far-fetched as you think. Not a bit of it. Isaiah speaks about, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it. The aim of revival is not to exalt man, not to fill our churches, but rather that God may be glorified. And if we lose that uh, idea, then we've lost the whole sense and the whole intention and the whole meaning of revival. The slogan of the Reformation was Solide Gloria, to the only glory of God. And that should be our slogan as well. That glory has been revealed. It was revealed in creation. The morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. That was the glory of God in creation, wasn't it? It was seen in the wilderness, in the cloud and the fire that was above the tabernacle and also in the manna that came from heaven and the rock that was broken open. That was the glory of God. And inside the tabernacle, come with me into the holiest of all, and you'll see there uh, the Ark of the Covenant, or perhaps you won't. Why? Because it was the Shekinah glory there. And that Shekinah glory covered everything else. Oh, it did, didn't it? And then the glory of God came down in, in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. And it's recorded, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. My, what glory it must have been to see the Lord with all his glory. And that glory is in redemption as well. It's a supernatural word. It's a supernatural experience in redemption. The angels desire to look into it. They don't understand it. They've never been lost souls, have they? But you and I know the glory of redemption, and we will do for eternity as well. And it is revealed, and it is realized. You see, in revival, people know that God's glory is amongst them. Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle, as I've indicated to you, and, and, and they came out and shouted, and fell on their knees. Why? Because the glory of the Lord came. Elijah upon Mount Carmel, remember how that he showed that God is a God that answers by fire. And the people fell on their faces and shouted, Here's the Lord! That's the glory of God. No question about that. And it is received as well. Receive the glory of God. Do we have to wait for heaven? before we see the glory of God? 
No, I don't think so. I really don't. I believe that we can see it now and here on earth because Solomon saw it. The people of God saw it in those days. No question about that. Sometimes we sing, don't we? Oh, that will be glory. Glory for me. Remember how it was composed. We understand that a preacher by the name of Gabriel was preaching in a church and one man was sitting at the front and every time he mentioned the second coming he would say, oh yes, that will be glory for me. And he went home and he just composed that hymn, that will be glory for me. Just to see him and look on his face. But my friend, why shouldn't we see the glory of God? To see his face, to see him as he really is. All that tonight we may determine in our hearts and minds to live as God intends us to live and to plead with God that God would come down as the fire and bless us so that our religion will be a real religion, not just a religion of words, but a religion of power, a religion of might and majesty when God will visit his people. May God do it for his sake and for his glory. Thank you for joining us for another service from the annual Birmingham Bible Conference here at Glen Iris Baptist Church in South Birmingham. If you would like a CD copy of Dr. Green's message, please call us at 205-323-1516. Again, that number is 205-323-1516. Or if you choose to write and request copies of these messages, send your correspondence to Glen Iris Baptist Church, 1137 10th Place South, Birmingham, Alabama, 35205. Again, that address is Glen Iris Baptist Church, 1137 10th Place South, Birmingham, Alabama, 35205. Thank you for joining us either on WAY-TV Channel 47 or WGIB Radio, the Where God is Blessing Broadcasting Network.